Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, my name is Sabina Brennan and you are listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with the brain. This week's episode is really, really different because myself and Norma Sheehan are kind of combining our podcasts and everybody knows that I usually research my guests in depth and have lots of prepared questions. This time I'm going commando and myself and Norma are just going to kind of get to know each other, talk about all sorts of stuff. And this is also going to go out as one of Norma's podcast episodes, which has a fab name. Yes, my name, it's called Heal Your Hole. I'm not as experienced as you are now, so I let your brain lead the way. And uh, if you have any holes that need healing, we'll heal them along the way. But my, my intro is usually um, welcome to the Heal Your Hole podcast with myself, Norma Sheehan, where we look at all the various holes in your life, physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, financial, comical, sexual, and we give them all a good seeing too. Oh, that's brilliant. I was just about to ask you why Heal Your Hole? I don't mean why you should heal your hole. Why did you call your podcast Heal Your Hole? Well, I did Celebrity Ireland's Fittest Family and Donnie Callahan was our coach and we won it and we got 10 grand for Arc House Cancer Support in Cork. But during the first challenge, I fell on my coccyx and broke it. (gasps) Oh, the pain. uh, Yeah. And Donnie said, get up off your hole and get on with it. Down the line, someone asked me to do a comedy tour and I said, I don't know anything. All I can think of is heal your whole. I have this heal your whole idea. And um, I started it as a one woman show, uh, kind of a stand up. It was touring. It was selling out because so many people needed their whole healed. And then COVID hit. So we, we were 10 or 20 shows in. They were selling really well. And we had a few more sold out. And then I changed it to a podcast once COVID hit and turned the car into a studio with duvets and pillows and mics. And I used to do my voiceovers there anyway. But I started the podcast out there then. It's just absolutely brilliant. And of course, the way that came out was you needed COVID like a hole in the head, like literally everything was just taken off. Now, Norma and I know each other because of the excellent Emily Burke, who happens to edit both of our podcasts. And uh, we really would be lost without her. She's an absolute genius. She's just brilliant to work with. She Not only is she a genius here, but she would be the guide of my voice career for many years. She's always looked out for me. I do voiceovers as well. So I'd be the voice of supermarkets for the government and whatever banks and stuff. And uh, certain people gave me a leg up when I needed it. Oh, that's fabulous. Well done, Emily. Um, I can do voiceover work too, Emily. (laughs) You certainly could. Have you never done it? No, I did always kind of want to do it in my acting days. So this is one thing that I know that you and I have in common is that I used to be an actor and you still are. So I'm kind of a little bit jealous of you because. Well, I'm jealous of you. Why? Because it's an addiction and you've got over your addiction and gone on with like having a sane life. That's really interesting because it is kind of an addiction. I've never heard it described as that. But the reason I do know of it as an addiction, we're talking about acting as an addiction, is that the amount of people that I know who are still in it, still doing it, still trying to make it 
and not making it and seeing that as, well, I never gave up on my dream. But you know what? Sometimes you can go other directions and find different stuff. I mean, I'll be really honest. Like I didn't go cold turkey and give up on my acting. Like I worked in TV and my character got killed off. And it's really weird here in Ireland. Like you're kind of told after you've had a big story, well, you won't work for a while because everybody will know who you are with that, mm. which is crazy. Everywhere else you'd be snapped up to go and work on other stuff. And I just thought I'd do a night course while I was waiting around because the hardest part of being an actor is doing nothing. The acting is the easy part in a way, really. The acting is like going to a spa for a weekend or whatever. Oh, you know, you get driven, you get minded, you get whatever. And the thrill of being actually performing is like taking drugs. So it's trying to get the work is the slog, as you just said. Yeah. And the not getting the work, the disappointment. And it's that one thing you can't act to yourself at home. Well, I mean, you could, but then you're really kind of going mad. You need to have a job. Somebody needs to employ you. At least if you're a writer, you can continue to write stuff. Acting is just one of those things. Uh, and that's, I find that very, very frustrating. Well, you're right. It is like a drug. You would get such a high. Hmm. And even and I never did that much live theatre. I preferred film and television, but I did used to get it right through to my fingertips just before I was about to go on stage. And I remember someone beside me were doing a play in a pub somewhere, mad play. And I was saying, oh, my God, it's everywhere. And the, the girl next to me was waiting to go on stage and she said, yeah, it's better than sex, isn't it? You know? yeah. And I knew I had the addiction. I wrote essays when I was six or seven saying when I grow up, I'm going to be an actor. And that's it, you know, full stop. Right. Well, I started acting at eight. Yeah. Yeah. So I was determined. But where I'm blessed is that I can't not work. So I can't sit and do nothing. I can't. No, I can't either. Uh, you can't either. So you no. you just basically found different strings to your bow. When you're on a podcast, you're acting. When you're writing your books, you're writing. You know, you're, you're still researching and creating. You have yeah. a creative gene that needs the buzz and the high and the low. And even if it's your book doing well or doing good from day to day, it's still a high. It's a hope. It's yeah. It's the same. I make animated films yeah. like I have animators, but I write, produce and direct them. They're the creativity. I found a way to blend the science with that creative need, urge, desire. I have to do it. So actually, I don't feel in a way that I've given up on acting. I'm just doing it in a very different way. And I'm doing it in a way that... I have control over. Like I give talks. I do a lot of corporate wellness talks. That's performing. I'm not standing up on the stage acting as people might think, but it is performing. You have to put on a... Way more difficult. You don't have someone else's script to perform. It's your own script or your own... Yes, so I have to write my own script and these ones are research. They're grounded in science. That's great. But actually what I do is translate complex science into easy to understand information. And I hang a few jokes in. I try and find entertainment. My animations are all funny. Well funny they're not funny haha in a way like a stand-up show would be hilarious yeah my first set of films where I got funding to make I actually pitched could I get funding to make 10 fun films about dementia now there's a pitch but I said here's the thing we have problems with dementia awareness nobody wants to talk about dementia everybody has their head in the sand I'm passionate about raising awareness about how you can reduce your risk for dementia yet the Alzheimer's Society send me films and say have a look at this and see what you think and I don't want to watch it because I don't want to be depressed so my solution was well hang on can I make little cartoons where there's a 
bit of humor in it, but the message is there. And I did that and they just took off. Just because a topic is serious doesn't mean that you have to treat it with this reverence where you can't laugh. And they worked because people can laugh and cry and still get the message. And that's that's why your podcasts are great as well, because, you know, one week you could be crying listening to it and it could be so deep and scientific. And another week, PJ Gallagher has your pee in your pants, you know. I find with acting as well, we got sent to drama classes as, as kids. Me too. And obviously I got addicted and hung on to it. But my sister did the best out of all of us because she had a stammer and a lisp and she went from that to having a better job than the other four of us and out earns us all. Because what drama gave her was the humiliation of standing up in poetry competitions or in a class or whatever and delivering lab performing. So she's able to present herself like you do at your talks in boardrooms and wherever and at trade shows. And I would reckon drama did more for her than probably me. (laughs) But you know what, when I, so kind of to give myself permission to kind of try acting full time, I got into the Gaiety School of Acting. Unfortunately, I couldn't afford to go because I had a mortgage at the time, which was kind of tough at that time. I had two young kids, but I qualified with the Guildhall School of Music and Drama to be a drama teacher. So I taught speech and drama to kids. Now, a lot of the parents came to me and said, can they do their exams? For people who don't know, you can do exams for speech and drama like you do for music exams. You do your grades and you can qualify, et cetera, at the end as a teacher or as a performer. And I did those from the age of eight right up. But that's not the kind of teacher I wanted to be. And so I said, no, if you want them to do that, send them somewhere else. I'm here to actually build their self-confidence, give them the skills to be able to have a conversation or to talk to people in public. And that's what I was about. It was about fun. And that's actually obviously then sort of what your sister gained of it. And I had a couple of parents came down and said, you've just, oh, they were so shy. And, and it's just kind of transformed them, got them out of their hole, their dark hole. <laughs> out of their dark hole. Because it is therapeutic. Like a lot of kids who are anxious or have difficulties in certain areas of life, they do art therapy or music therapy, but acting would be another one. And yeah, I'm delighted that you got a good mix of it. Now the poetry and the, the boring stuff as well, like I did those exams too. That was good as well because I learned the basics of the breathing and whatever and it helped me in life and then when I went on to drama school in London you know you still do bits of that did you go to RADA I went to RADA wow so guys who don't really know like RADA is the creme de la creme really oh I'm so jealous and did you go full time yeah it was three years full oh my god was it heaven what was it like well, I mean, just getting through the auditions was tricky because they see thousands and they pick 30 every year. Wow. And I don't know what it is like now, but back in the day, they didn't really focus much on the voiceovers or the filming. It was very theatrical, yeah. um, which I thought was not great in that they didn't prepare us for the real world. We should have had a class in accountancy to manage our own ourselves of business. Yeah. We should have had voiceover work. We should have had way more filming work because that's the way work was going. I mean, I had amazing three years. It was like most best therapy ever. But you came out of it thinking that you could live off theatre and like the people who work in theatre 12 months of the year could not live off theatre. It no. does not pay. And you're not told that. You're not told that that's, <gasps> you can't go on and have kids and a mortgage and have a life if you're a theatre actor. It's not. I think it's different now though, isn't it? No, I, it's I'm worse. Sure. It, it's is it worse? worse. I was oh my God. Oh, could, could you do this play for a thousand? I was like, Jesus, you know, whatever. No, no, I don't mean the theatre. I mean RADA. I'm sure RADA oh, teaches them film acting. Oh yeah, theatre. Yeah, any for, sort of performing arts. Oh yeah. No, I, I might as well finish that one. They said a uh, thousand euro. And I was thinking, Jesus, you know, whatever. And I'll, I'll weigh it up, see, does that cover childcare, petrol, all the rest of it, and it looks good, sounds good. No, it was a thousand euro for five weeks' work. 
which might be good if you were living at home with Matt, me and, you know, after tax, whatever that would be. I was just like, are you asking someone in their 40s to do five yeah. weeks work? Someone that's been working at a trade for 20 years. I was just going, I don't know what to say to you. I actually don't know what to say to you. Yeah, yeah. Actually, before we started the podcast, myself and Emily were just chatting there. I mean, the amount of people who expect me to work for nothing. And I mean, you think you leave that behind when you're in acting uh, and, and you do it at the start. Right. So I think I was about 32 when I started to act professionally and I was happy enough. I had two kids. So that same sort of scenario, mortgage, all the rest. And I did a lot of student films and stuff like that. And you do those for nothing. And then there was this like profit share theatre. <laughs> <laughs> there was never a profit. So essentially you worked for nothing. You paid for your own costumes, you know, like literally it costs you to work on those shows. And the films as well, doing the short films for people, I would still help someone out if they wanted to get a leg up and they wanted to make a short film over a weekend, I will turn up and I'll help them. And there's no money involved. And um, you'll do it just like, you know, a favour. Yeah. But if they come back then and ask you to help them with PR and stuff like that, you're just going... Look, are you having a laugh now? You better send me a picture to post them. If you expect me to spend a couple of more hours or they're going, will you go to this festival, that festival, the other festival? Yeah. Going, yeah. Sorry, you want me to go to the festival, buy the ticket and pay for my own hotel, travel as well. Just going, hang on now. I gave you a weekend of my life. I gave you something. Yeah, you see, and I thought, you know, that would change, but it's quite the same. You know, I give talks and those talks take a long time to prepare and I do get paid for them, thankfully. And I have an agency. I do most of it through an agency because it's just unbelievable with people. They just expect you to do it for nothing. And you kind of go, it's like they think, oh, yeah, well, it's only an hour. And you kind of go, well, actually, no, it's not only an hour. It's been all the years I went to university (laughs) and it's all the time that it takes me to put together. I do a top class talks and that all takes time. And I do a lot of pro bono work. Even just showering and washing your face, like and getting there and and putting your makeup on. And when you're doing that, you're not doing anything else. And I do pro bono work exactly like that. And, you know, I have a group of charities. They're related to dementia, multiple sclerosis, migraine, those kind of things. And I do a lot that way and happy to do that. Mm. But like people... I don't know, randomly in some businesses expect you to just show up. Speaking of dementia, right? And you being all knowing about the brain and stuff like that. I'm doing a show shortly, opening in the next couple of days, Shirley Valentine. So I have to speak for an hour and 40 minutes and I'm in the middle of rehearsing and learning the lines. Do you have any tips for me? Because I thought I knew how to learn lines, but there seems to be, obviously it's probably more difficult when you get older, but it seems to be about focusing, being in the moment, being in now, getting rid of every distraction, reading it numerous times, listening to it numerous times, then putting it into the mouth numerous times, saying it, but then I still get up in rehearsal and it just comes out my hole literally. And it's to try to stop just saying it. And then it has to be literally in you, like you'd say, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, P, to get the emotions across. I'd forgotten because I hadn't taken on a part this big with some yeah, filming. Yeah. You might only have two scenes in a day. You might have nothing the next day. Then you might have three scenes the next day. You might have nothing the next day. Then you have four lines of a day. So you're grand. So you can fit that. It's a long time since I've done something so gigantic. And it's an amazing play. And if you get a chance, go and see it. It's on in the Gaiety. 12th to 16th of October. Yeah. Gaiety, 12th to 16th of October. And But then it's going, to tour, it's going to tour the country anyway. So yeah, after that. Oh, right. OK, brilliant. The thing is, Shirley Valentine. God. I'm delighted. I'm thrilled. Oh, it's an incredible part. That was my audition piece for the Gaiety School of Acting. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, Wall. 
she talks to the walls, basically, doesn't she? Yeah. Uh, I loved it. It was my dream to get to play Shirley Valentine. Now, at the time, like that was my audition piece and I would have only been in my 20s, you know, 26, 27. But Willie Russell is a fabulous playwright as well. I had a Zoom call with him yesterday. He came- you didn't yeah. Oh, my God. He wrote Blood Brothers as well. And other That's things. right. We did Zoom call with him because he knew we were doing it in Ireland and he knows that I can't do the Liverpool accent. I have no intention of boring people. Oh, are you not doing the Liverpool? No, I'm not. Um, so he's really happy for it to be set in Cork because that's like ah. the second biggest city in Ireland. So he came on a Zoom for two hours to help us. There was about 20 words that he wanted to make Irish. Oh, cool. So he's allowed us to adapt it to... Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And I can still see her face, the woman who played the part in the film, because it is a film, folks. Oh, Pauline and Pauline. Pauline Collins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She lovely dimples and she was just brilliant. And I always remember that line in it. Uh, Clitoris. Clitoris. I think it's nicer that way. Could even be a name. Clitoris. Hiya, Clitoris. Wait till I tell you, Clitoris. Yeah, she'd only ever read the word. So obviously she said it out loud. And it's just brilliant. It's a lovely piece of work. And at the time, it was really very novel. Do you know what I mean? Because I mean, that was early 80s, would it have been? Late 80s, uh, well, mid 80s. It was all about discovering the clitoris. And, you know, it wasn't all bam, bam, thank you, ma'am. And about just finding in your mid 40s that your, you know, your kids have moved on and you've got nothing and you're you're institutionalized by the sink and you're afraid. Yeah, she used to literally be talking to the walls. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then she goes, did you go on a holiday? Uh, she does. She does go yeah. on a holiday. Yeah. yeah, that's it. It's a fabulous play, like it really is. And it's a fabulous part. But I don't envy you the hour and a half of script exactly like that. I worked in television in soap and you might have 16 scenes in a week, but you have a time in between scenes to learn your lines and know them. And it is true, like you can't act, you can't be a character if you're looking for lines. The lines have to be there and then you can be them. There's nothing worse. I don't know about you, like, you know, the way sometimes you know when you're not getting it because you can hear yourself saying it. That's when you're not in it. I never really was fond of the word, you know, when they say as an actor, you're performing. And I I said, no, I'm not performing. Someone who sings performs, someone who dances performs in a way. When you're an actor, you're being. If you're performing, it's false. If you're being, you're in there in it. And you don't always get it. And sometimes you can hear yourself and you kind of know you're not quite there. And that's why you have to have the lines. Totally. Like some shows you come off and you go, oh God, tonight was a bit stilted, a bit technical. Yeah. And then other times you just go, well, that just felt great from start to finish. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It does. And I mean, that's, I suppose, the little piece of magic. Well, how does the brain work to, I don't know. To do that. <laughs> like I'm, get, I'm getting there, but like it's, you know, and I, I will, it'll be perfect. I promise. Uh, yeah, I suppose, I guess what you've got to do. Yeah, because I mean, I give hour long talks, but the thing is I have the freedom to change lines and to go with the flow. I don't have a set script for my talks. I have set topics that I cover and I have slides and I know what I'm going on to. And some of them become set because they roll out. And, you know, maybe you said them one time and you go, oh, that really works. And you can kind of say it again. But I have huge freedom. And that's why I like my talks to be that way, that especially if there's people in the audience and you can see when people are nodding and you can see when it's a, a moment and a ha moment for them. And so you'll give it a little more and you'll say, yeah, you know what I mean? And so I like to be very free in my talks and that allows you to improvise. But the thing with theatre and with plays is you can't. You've got to stick with the script. I guess the best 
trick would be to, because it's so long, is to break it down into, and the play is sort of broken down in that way. Three scenes. Yeah, so it's probably is to see it nearly as multiple different pieces rather than one long piece. So you do this piece and then your brain can get rid of that piece and then your brain doesn't have to think, oh, I have to remember an hour left now. Actually, I only have to remember this next little five minute segment and this next little. I'd say that kind of might be a good way for your brain not to get overwhelmed or really for you to get in the way of your brain thinking you'll be overwhelmed. <laughs> and I suppose the, the brain as well, like what, you know, it's a simple thing of going for a walk and getting some air and coming back to it. The brain does get exhausted, doesn't it? Oh, it gets exhausted and you have to give it a break. And that's the same. Like I've done stuff around kids studying for exams and coming up to leave and certain that and they're kind of studying all day right through to the life. It's pointless. Like it really is pointless because there reaches a point where nothing is going to go in. You are far better off taking a break. And one thing that I often say is actually to take exercise at lunchtime. There's a natural slump in the afternoon. All of us kind of feel it. There's a dip in our alertness. And one way to counteract that is actually to take exercise at lunchtime. And if you actually take exercise at lunchtime, you can learn better, you can remember more and you can focus better. So like that, say if you're kind of working on and learning and actually if I think about it now I didn't know it back at the time but when I used to be learning my scripts for the show I would learn them at home and learn them and learn them and learn them and then I would go for a walk and I would say them in my head and similarly I would say them in the shower or driving is a great one as well yeah Yeah. those kind of things and I would kind of go through them and that yeah I mean that is it yeah repetition and trusting that your brain knows it and that you just don't get in the way because if the stress hormones get released, that'll get in the way of you finding the words. And it's not brain surgery, you know, it's not life or death. It's close enough, but it's not. And I do remember when I was studying for the junior cert, I loved studying for the junior cert. I, my granny had just died and I, so I went over to her house and I put my nine subjects in different corners of the room and the hall and the, the kitchen. I made out how many days I'd left and I was going well, yeah. that many days, which means I've that many half hours left before the junior cert. And I put all those tickets into a box and I'd go over and I'd pick a ticket out the raffle. And that meant I had to do 30 minutes of music. And I think I then went to the music and there was another ticket in there to do something else. Well, the excitement. Ah, that's brilliant. Of, of going through it and knowing that history was over there by the TV. Yeah. Uh, music was out by the coat stand and yes. I, I could visualize everything and did it in little chunks. And yeah, the chunking is an absolutely brilliant way to do it. So the surprise bit for me there is that you pulled it out of a hat and surprised yourself, which is lovely. I would have that organized brain and I would have had all that organized. And I did it for my sons as well, you know, and I would say, right, that's what you have to do for geography. That's what's there for history. You're going to do that today because there's only X number amount of days left. And I would figure all that out. And But actually, obviously, then that would work really nicely for Shirley Valentine as well. Just put different parts of it in different parts of the room. <laughs> actually, actually, sorry, I've started doing a bit of that already. I, I cut the script up into the 30 something pages I had the script as well but I thought printed it out 36 whatever pages and I'd put one in my bra when I'd be going down to the, just pick any random page and stick it in my bra when I'm walking down to the shop and back and put right. it out and have a look then another one I was going for, someone was driving me somewhere and I took it just didn't know which page it would be just random obviously you have to put them back into order or you're going yeah to, yeah yeah like that that's what I did actually a couple of weeks ago was to just get it started and get familiarised and yeah I'm prob- yeah it's funny how you go back to oh. yeah and you're kind of doing it you kind of know yourself what works for yourself it's just been a while yeah as you say, since you've kind of done and doing a one woman show, that's 
Well, in one way, I think that's kind of empowering because you're totally in control. So you're not dependent on anyone else. Yeah. Performance. And inside the door of the cooker or the fridge, I'm going to put a little list. Worst case scenario, I go over for a top up of the wine and I go, oh, Jesus, there we are. Back we go. Yeah. Yeah, you could. But sometimes having that then can put you off as well. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true. How many books have you written? Two. So the last one's what, what? Eating Brain Fog. Yeah. And 100 Days to a Younger Brain. You're just a legend. How do you get your brain over a book? How do you keep the whole book in your head trying to create it? Oh, yeah, it's a bit like that. It's a bit like what you're talking about. Um, it's kind of a bit backwards first. I suppose, you know, there's a story that you want to tell and then you know that there's really important key messages, key points that you have to tell. For me, then it's, again, probably a bit like acting as well. You have to find a way in. So you have to find a way to tell the story. Do you know what I mean? Because, yeah, these are science based books, but you want to tell a story. And I learned like I think my second book is better than my first book. The first book has all the content, but I didn't trust myself enough. Whereas this one, I went, OK, I know how to do this. It's got more anecdotes and it's more casual, has all the science in it. And I think it's an easier read because of it. But you still have to find a way in. You kind of have to find a structure to build it on. So you'll know that you have to have a structure to the play you're writing. There has to be highs and lows because if you deliver Shirley Valentine all at one level, it's the most boring piece of drivel. So part of a story is the highs and the lows and the emotional piece and the humour and all that. An editor then, because I know you're saying some of it's scientific, but still people are going to put your book down and pick up a different book if you don't grasp them. And like the way when you're watching a film, if there isn't a twist or a turn or a hook every four minutes, apparently now people change a channel or turn. Wow. Wow. You have an editor involved in your book to keep an eye. Yeah, but they don't really do that. So basically I had to, for this one, I needed to find an in. I knew what had to be there. I knew I wanted to write about hormones and brain fog. I knew I needed to write about autoimmune disease and pain and brain fog. And then I knew I needed to write about like the lifestyle factors, like nutrition and exercise. So that was fine. That was kind of my chapters. But I also knew that I need to tell people what brain fog is. And then I also wanted to empower them so that they understood their own brain fog, not just to say something, oh, I have brain fog. I wanted to be able to say to them, well, look, if you have issues making decisions, that's actually related to your frontal lobes, your executive function. Here's things that you can do to work on that specific aspect. Or this is exactly what you can say to your doctor so that you're not just going in with this vague sort of, oh, my brain doesn't seem to be doing what it should anymore. But for me, what I needed to do was find a hook to sort of hang it on. And actually, for me, it came with The Art of War. <laughs> it's The Art of War by Sun Tzu. I think I knew how to pronounce it when I was doing the audiobook, And I included quotes from him. And it's fabulous. So I have one section, which is knowledge. That's the first section. So that's knowledge about the book. And he says, you know, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy for every victory gained, you'll also suffer defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And that gave me the hook because I was giving them knowledge about the condition, which is the enemy, but knowledge about themselves. What is it about you? that is kind of contributing to that. And, and so the four sections, I think, in the book, I have to kind of look at them again, are knowledge, power, change and future. So knowledge is power and you can change your future. And so I was kind of able to slot then 
everything in under that once I kind of had that. And then I suppose as well, people like patterns, our brains like patterns. So each chapter follows the same pattern. There's an anecdote sort of at the beginning about someone's experience. Then there's a brief explanation. Then there's a bit about what you can do about it. And then people get into that rhythm, I suppose. That's it. But it's very different to writing a fiction book. I think it's more about keeping it accessible so people can see themselves in it. And actually, that's the biggest compliment I've got about that book from people emailing them and saying to me, I can see myself on every page. And I just said, oh, great. That's it. Because the hormone thing with the menopause is, was it hormone brain fog with menopause more than? Well, no, right across with hormonal changes, fluctuations are imbalanced. So you can get brain fog with PMT. You can get it during pregnancy, baby brain, you know, post-pregnancy. Coming off the boob is a scary one as well. I remember that. Is it? I didn't breastfeed. So I actually didn't know that. Yeah, I know because it's it's basically a delayed, um, do you know where you get uh, postnatal depression? Yeah. It can be held off. Until if you suddenly come off the boob and you don't gradually do it, right? You just get thrown into this madness. And yeah, I had a friend who was running around naked, throwing plates at people, and <gasps> had to be okay. pulled down to the GP. And she, you know, and luckily she told me her situation just as I was delving into coming off. Right, the certainly she can't. Yeah, it's amazing that if you know something is coming, that sounds more like mental health, you know, rather than brain health or brain fog. But I can sort of imagine and see why. But it's just the change in. It's the estrogen job really in uh, menopause, which is really particularly awful, perimenopause and getting there. And that's one key reason I wrote the book, because I think so many women, because of the age it happens at, Mm. they may be dealing with parents who have dementia and they may be concerned that they're getting it themselves. And I just wanted to kind of get that. No, this is brain fog. This is something that you can do something about. This is absolutely categorically not dementia. It is very different. It's reversible. It's occurring because of X, Y, Z. I agree. It's very connected to nutrition as well, because I did a course in nutrition and I I would say my mind is much clearer if I'm having like alkalizing foods and I avoid a bit, you know, the wheat and dairy and stuff. And even a few years ago, I did um, kind of a yeast infection diet. And uh, I <laughs> during the die-off period, I got a lot of brain fog, which I felt was like almost like a mini um, chemotherapy. because it. Was- so what do you mean the die-off period when you were coming off yeast? Well, it's called the candida diet to reduce yeast. So I went off all sugars. So I think the body is expelling all these toxins from all the yeast in you to get the right balance back. And then you get this die-off period where you feel you're getting a fever and stuff and you get brain fog, a lot of brain fog as well. Okay. I don't know. Am I dreaming? No, I don't know. I mean, I you know, there's a huge relationship between the gut and your brain. And there is a huge relationship. Obviously, the fuel for your brain is the food that you eat. So like rubbish in, rubbish out. The best evidence is for a Mediterranean diet in terms of brain health. So basically lots of colorful fruit and veg, oily fish, nuts, olive oil, really healthy diet, no processed food. And I know myself that is when I feel the best. That's when I feel the sharpest. That's when I don't even have to worry about my weight. Uh, I've tons of energy and all the rest. I don't know why I fall off at sometimes. Like, why do we fall off anything, you know? It's really, I mean, with COVID, I just went on the biscuit thing to story and that was it. I just felt yeah. life was t- tough to be. I should have stayed on healthy diet, but it just, it just went out the window, all me olive oils and me avocados and spinaches and all the rest of it. And it was the exact time when you needed it. Yeah, I know. And it's the hard, we're really funny creatures, really, in that way. You see, the thing is, 
habits never disappear. So bad habits or unhealthy habits never disappear. And it makes sense for habits not to disappear because you don't want to forget how to tie your shoelaces just because you spend six months in flip flops over the summer. You know what I mean? That's habitual behavior. So it makes sense for them not to disappear. So they're always underneath there. And so we would have been certainly my age. I'm older than you, but would have been brought up with very unhealthy diets, actually, to be honest, as Irish kids, loads of white bread, (laughs) cornflakes for breakfast, white bread, sambos with probably an orange colored cheese for lunch. And then dinner was potatoes and a little bit of meat if, if you got it. And most of us hated our vegetables. We really had crap diets. So then for us, introducing a healthy diet is introducing a new habit, a new way of eating. And I know I feel great when I do that, et cetera. But like that, we know that all habits resurface when you have disrupted sleep and when you're stressed. That's when they resurface. And that's what the last 18 months has been, is just chronic stress. And it takes work. It's cognitively demanding to introduce a new habit. And I think that's probably it. So many of us have experienced brain fog during the whole time. It just feels like that it's just hard. It's just too hard to just do the day-to-day stuff without having to do that extra work of the dieting. Of course, if we did that, it would work out well. But you know what? I am kind of a little bit with people who say, hold on a second, we are dealing with a lot. Let's kind of do what we can deal with. Because I've gone up and down now during the pandemic. Like I've gone skinny and heavy and skin. Well, not skinny, skinny's is a relative term. But when my book came out, like I knew I had to be thin for that. The vanity worked there because I knew I was going to be on the telly. And so that was fine. But then I kind of fell back and gained it again. And I've sort of been up and down. But I also have had other stressors. You know, one of my kids was seriously ill a couple of months ago. And you know this and we should talk about this. My house is up for sale. Is it still up for sale? Yeah, yeah, it is still fucking. Oops. Oh, no, it's a podcast. I can do that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. That running around. And I mean, my house is always tidy unless I'm madly rushing to put on makeup. Then I can create the illusion of a bomb explosion in my bedroom in the two minutes. But generally speaking, it is. But when you know someone's coming to walk around your house oh, yeah. and may open your hot press or open under your sink, or, like you literally can spend hours cleaning. And that's what I've been doing anytime people come to view the house. Well, we were very lucky because we sold our house in the, the height of COVID. So people were told you will only get one visit. And right. if you put down your deposit, you may get another one. All the visits were 30 minutes apart. So the house could be recleaned. I think they'd wear gloves coming in and masks. Wow. So it was very intense. And did you have to reclean or did the estate agents do a bit of a reclean? Well, they didn't touch anything and they, they were given gloves to wear. Yeah. Stuff so that it was, and the house was totally aired while they were in now. So it was really, really clinical. But the beauty of that is that it sold in a week. Wow. But yes, what I was also told is they have one visit. So during that visit, they are allowed into the attic. They are allowed into everything in the attic. Yeah. They are allowed to open everything, which normally on a first visit, you could shove stuff into the attic and just, yeah. so the attic had to be a show house as well. So I just was like, right, let's throw our lives away. So I just got rid of so much stuff. We got rid of a load of stuff during COVID yeah. as well, which was quite therapeutic. Yeah. Now it's still stressful, but I have to say we probably had the easiest sale you could imagine due to COVID. Wow. No, our house went on the market in April. We had, um, yeah, we won't talk about the first estate agent we had, but needless to say, she didn't bring anyone into the house. <laughs> okay, yeah, I've, I've had a few dodgy experiences over the year with them. Uh, one where we fell out with them and we sold it ourselves years ago. And they wow. came back to us and said, oh, do you mind if we put a sold sign outside the house for a while? <gasps> 
do you know what? I actually remember going grand. Yeah. So they were pretending they sold your house. We were also looking at another house and they were saying, we really want to see it. We really want to see it. And they were like, no, no, we can't get you in to see. We can't. I was, we were like, we want to see this other house. And they were selling our house. The fella selling our house had bought this other house and had pretended <gasps> he wouldn't let, they were selling that house as well. And we wanted to see that house for moving. The- oh, that's illegal. I don't think they're allowed to do that. Okay, well, I'm not saying that's... who they were then. because Yeah. Anyway, we got another guy in who's great and he's brought loads of people in to see the house. So, Cause, you know, with all your brain guruness, do you know where to park all that stuff and to prioritize and like not having mental breakdowns? Oh, God, no. I had like, as I say to everybody, I'm a human being first, like Jesus, (laughs) I know what to do. It doesn't mean I can do it or I do it all the time at the moment. Like I'm struggling desperately with my sleep. I give talks on how to promote good sleep. I'm struggling with my own sleep at the moment, but I do know and I'm working on it and I do know that I have to fix that and that will help. To be honest, actually, I did a podcast on it a couple of weeks ago that I'd been trying and failing with diets lately. And that's not like me. Like I really am determined. It's a bit like that actor thing. You know, you can go all focus, blinkers on. This is what I'm doing. And that's normally the way I would be with diets and exercise. If I want to lose weight, I could and have done in like two weeks, exercise three times a day, 800 calories and lose a bunch really quickly. And I've tried that the last few months and I just keep falling off the wagon, you know, and that's just not like me. And it was only when I was doing a piece for one of these booster shots that I realized, you know what? I really have had disrupted sleep for the last few months for several reasons. And to cut a long story short, if you have disrupted sleep, you can eat up to 600 more calories the next day and a few other issues like that. So actually what I've decided to do now is I'm not focusing on dieting. I'm focusing on getting my sleep back on track. And if that gets back on track, then I should be able to kind of, and I started back at the gym yesterday and I should start to be able, but I have a problem is I developed a rash sort of last year during COVID. I think my brain is allergic to my body. Do you know, I always get these things like itchy stuff. and like eczema, eczema. No, it's not like an eczema. This, this thing is literally just there's nothing there I've had biopsies taken my skin just gets mad itchy and you can see them there I just itch it till I dig a hole in it and then that bleeds and do you eat wheat and dairy are you off the wheat and dairy well you know what I am back on the wheat and dairy but I'll go off it again but no this started like April 2020 so I actually was eating quite well then at that point so it's probably you just trying to close your own skin then you're trying to I don't don't know what it is I just yeah like my husband got his hair cut the other day and he came back and he said can't talk to you I have to go up have a shower get that feeling of the itchy hair off me is what he said and I said well welcome to my world because that's what my body feels like all day every day at the moment is just either like you've been in the attic or you've been at the hairdressers it's just mad horrible I've done three day water fast where you just take water just water maybe maybe a little bit of um Himalayan salt or something like that and what it does actually is yes you'd go you'd get the, the brain fog part of it but you start to I've never been enlightened but you start to have this amazing awareness and space and your senses go up and your snoring goes down and your itching goes away and your vision improves and it's just all these yeast attacking you that are the whatever whatever is going on in your body your your body just gets an old hug <laughs> probably a last hug before you die of starvation yeah no it's <laughs> going into another zone i think yeah my friend has done up to 14 days and <gasps> like you know jesus did 40 days in the desert and that is a thing nobody wants to do that but apparently you should do a three or a five day one a few times a year it's basically 
So you stop breaking down sugar and you move into breaking down the free radicals. So you're breaking down the toxic cells, your fat burning. So you're breaking down the toxic cells. Now, it's not for weight loss because you'll put it on straight away back after. Yeah. It's not, for, yeah, not it's not a diet. It's just for like, it's like a mini chemo detox. Yeah. I kind of think we eat so much junk and we actually eat too much food. Do you know, like a lot of these blue zones where people live long and live healthily and with sharp brains, they tend to eat very little. You know, they eat just as much as, as they need. And we eat way more than we eat. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. All the religions have one day fast a week. So that would be right. You'd eat your dinner on a, say a Thursday night and you wouldn't break the fast breakfast till Saturday yeah. morning. So every Friday would be just water, but should we turned it into fish day and thank uh, <laughs> feck it's Friday day. And you know, yeah, so yeah. If, yeah. if we were to be diligent about it, you'd have one day a week where your system would re- just get a chance to, yeah. I mean, I did the 800 fast and that's eating 800. And I'm not advocating any of these. This is just us no. chatting away here. I did the 800 fast, which is Michael Mosley. I think is that his name. He's a, he's a doctor. And it's basically you eat 800 calories a day and you try and eat it in a relatively short period. So the longer you can leave between your, so, and it's actually quite easy to do. If you eat just healthy, basic food, 800 calories is not that small. Oh yeah, it's 800 calories and you can have as much green vegetables as you want. So you can really kind of fill up with that. I did it and, and found it relatively pleasant. I didn't find it that difficult. And so you'd say maybe have your dinner at seven o'clock and then not eat your breakfast till 11 the next day. And so your eating period. And then as you sort of progress through that one, then you go into what he calls as five, two. So it's five days of normal eating, two days of 800 fast. Oh, yeah. And that's similar enough to the Buddhists or the water fasts or whatever. You find what suits you. My husband lost two stone because he just does intermittent fasting. So he eats between six or seven hours of the day and he fasts for the rest. And yeah, to be honest, there's a lot to be said for not eating late at night and not drinking late at night. You see, that's the problem, though, is if you have a couple of gins, then the willpower goes, the frontal lobes are shut down, the willpower goes and you start picking and starting to eat all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I might pick your brain on um, I have teenagers that they haven't done the junior search yet, but it's interesting that your son did medicine, did he? He did. Yes. And you managed to give him a, a timetable to get him there. So, yeah, yeah, we have a podcast. We d- I actually interviewed this particular son. because oh, Which one? And I'll have a listen. 
Yeah, he's dyslexic. Um, it was season two. Yeah, so Darren was dyslexic. So he never had any problems reading. Written language was a big issue for him. So thinking and writing at the same time is really, really problematic for him. He also doesn't see sequences or patterns. He could figure out, you know, what seven times six was, but he couldn't see the pattern in a times table. It's really hard for us to get our heads around because you can see it. And reading a regular clock or even the seasons or the months of the year, those kind of things were really challenging. And this is a really smart kids. So then organization was really challenging for him. And so, yeah, by necessity, I kind of stood in and planned out his exams for him, literally because the school were useless. The schools operate on data and information that's 20, 30 years old. They used to kind of be trying to teach him how to spell. That wasn't his issue. It really wasn't. But anyway, um, yeah, I organized stuff. I did out exactly what you were talking about doing yourself. I actually got onto the Department of Education website and figured out because that's it used to be available there anyway. Um, and literally, what are they looking for? What are they marking? What are you going to get? A job really that the school and the teachers should probably tell the kids. Um, And I would say to him, right, okay, in geography, you're going to have three questions on this subject. And for each of those, they're looking for 10 points. Three of those points have to be about X, Y, Z. And literally we worked together and we worked out answers that spoke to the actual questions because it's just a game. I mean, to be honest, it is just a game. Those exam results don't mean anything other than you're good at giving the right answers in those results. And what year did he do the leaving search? Because I think they're a bit better now. They do they do show they? the exam structure and they show you, well, if you've broken that up into three points, you would have got three marks instead of one mark. Right. OK, so it's a while ago now. Yeah. So that was when he did his junior cert. His leaving cert, he went to the Institute and they were much better. They do break it down according to how you study. And so he did that. There's also DARE places now as well. It's to do some DARE, D-A-R-E's stands for something to do with um, dyslexia, where there's certain places in each course in college given to someone who needed help in the exams with dyslexia and stuff. Yeah. So then he did an undergrad degree in biochemistry and immunology, and then he did a degree in medicine. And yeah, he's flying. He's flying now. That is really working the system. and uh... It's working the system. Yeah. I mean, that's what I just said to him. This system doesn't measure your intelligence level appropriately, but there's no other way. We can either give up, we can be broken by the system or we can just play the system. And it was awful. And it was, a, you know, in a way it was a big strain on our relationship because I couldn't be mother who was, oh, I know it's awful, sweetheart. Come here, I give you a hug. I was mother who was cracking the whip going, if you don't study this now for the next 20 minutes, we'll be thrown behind. And like I literally did, like I was in the room, I would send him off and say, right, you got to go learn that. Come back to me with the 10 points. I'll examine you on the 10 points. How did he study in college then when you weren't there to kind of set up? Well, we were there. So in college, yeah, he did manage the course was very confusing. So where I helped was looking at the course and breaking it down from him saying, OK, that's what you need to study. So he was well able. And because he did the sciencey ones, you know, a lot of it was learning facts and stuff. So it wasn't about writing essays and pulling that kind of stuff together. So that kind of did help immensely. I think what people don't understand when you've something like dyslexia or other form of learning difficulty is that it is the exhaustion. It is the cognitive load that you can't to work so much harder than someone to work three times harder than someone else. And so just for him, just listening in the lectures 
yeah. was exhausting. So whilst others would be maybe go to the pub for an hour or two and then come back and do a study, he would come home and have to go to bed for three or four hours and then get up and try and study. That's what's not accounted for. Yeah, they might give you 15 minutes extra in an exam because you're slower writing. But really what it is, is you have to work three or four times harder than anybody else. You used a lot of creativity and improvisation and acting there within dealing with parenting. I find I have to improvise every day in every situation. There's no manual, is there? No freaking manual. So it's just constantly coming up with something exhilarating and different. That's just say, I mean, my kids are a bit older now, but just say if it's just, I don't know, trying to get them to bed at a certain time, dangling carrots, this, that, the other. Something will work for a few weeks, a bit of reverse psychology, a bit of, I don't know, something to stimulate them. How old are, how old are yours now? So my identical twin girls are... Oh my God, have you? Yeah, they're great. They're 14. Wow. And wow. in the younger daughter is 11. So there's two and a bit years. So she's, gosh, what was that like having twins... Um, first. I didn't know any better, but it was very hard in that I didn't get a lot of sleep and there was no time for goo goo gaga, I love you stuff. So it was just a conveyor belt. So yes. you picked up the one that was either choking or wetting themselves or needed burping and you just neglected the one who was happy. It wasn't until I had my third child that I kind of went, oh, I actually, I think I don't have to put this baby down to pick up the other one. Wow. Yeah, I, I think I feel, is this love? Like, oh, yeah, so sorry. <laughs> but that, it was just frantic. I didn't know till I had the third one what it could be like to have a baby. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I, my first one was tough. I have a lovely interview with Melissa Hoganboom this season. She's episode two. She's written um, a fab book called The Motherhood Complex. Yes, yes. Oh, clips of that, yeah. Oh, fabulous. Because what I loved about that was... She was a professional, you know, a BBC science journalist and a great career and really excellent career, doing great, become pregnant and had her baby and thought, oh, this is really hard. <laughs> this is tough. I'm kind of struggling here and had a second baby and just felt like that she was just firefighting all the time, just trying to keep them alive, trying to stop this one, hitting that one, trying to, how am I going to cook? Like the book really is about how it changes your identity, but I could totally identify with that because I would always see myself as a very competent person. I have perfectionist tendencies, which I try to dampen down as often as possible because it's just the worst thing. But I thought that I would sail through motherhood and then sort of a bit like you there saying like Darren was a challenging baby and I feel awful saying that because he throws back at me sometimes like oh yeah I was a tough baby but he was he never slept he cried all the time you were probably a pain in the hole as well at some certain stages as a mother like Oh, God, I was dreadful, yeah. dreadful. I, I put my hands up on that. PMT, I mean, I literally could have, I try not to, because guilt serves no purpose. And I have apologized to my kids, but like some of the things I shouted at them and did when I was PMT with two young kids running around the house, the guilt I feel when I see their faces, you know, but then it got to the point where I say, well, mommy's like this, just go to your room and shut the door. Because <laughs> essentially mommy is crazy. I just get out of the car and walk along the road a few times and they'd be annoyed then because, you know, they're late then for where they want to get to or they're wondering why their mother's walking. But I'm just, instead of shouting at them, I remove myself from the situation. See, I wish I had that sense. 
back then? I do it for selfish reasons because if I have confrontation with someone, it takes me up to 48 hours to shake off a comment I make to somebody or a mean thing or whatever. So I'm doing it to be selfish. Yeah, but that's smart. That's huge self-awareness to know to do that because I would have been like that. My temper would go. I would say something. Now, not just to the kids, but like, you know, when I was younger, I don't do it anymore. And then like that, the way you just described it is perfect. 48 hours to shake it off. Sometimes it would take me even longer. It would just keep going round and round and round in my head. Point. Why did I say that? I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. Oh, my God. And probably the person that you said it to, it was, yeah, you know, gone over their head. Actually, where I have to be careful, on the other hand, is then I crack a lot. I think I'm hilarious, of course. So I crack jokes and be a bit cynical with people. Most people know me and don't take it seriously, but it's it's the odd time someone comes back and I'm going, oh, when I said go F yourself, I actually, no, I was going, I might have said something like, ah, fuck off with yourself. <laughs> and they're literally like, she told me to fuck off with myself. Yeah. So I have to be careful, obviously to be more extreme than that, maybe or something that, uh, or I might say something like, oh, sure, go on you, sure you're the ugliest pig in the blah, blah. And I might be saying, yeah. I think the person's so beautiful. So it's like, yeah. And yeah, I have to be careful there thinking I'm hilarious when I'm actually. Yeah, that's kind of a funny thing because that's kind of an Irish thing. We kind of have that. Well, some of us have that. You do yourself down and and you slag other people off. And yeah, yeah, maybe not everybody has that kind of thing. I notice it when you interact with people from other countries, cultures or whatever, you kind of have to temper you, particularly the language thing, you know, because I'd say fucking this and effing that. And some people just don't use it. I was reared on C-U-N-T, like, you know. Where you know, that was a that was a taboo one. I reserved that for some people. There's two people I reserve it for. I'll say bunting here just in case someone gets offended, but it'd be like, my dad would be like, oh, the bunting car won't start. Oh, look at that bunt of a oh, really? the- yeah. <laughs> So it wasn't until I moved to Dublin and London that I really like. Now you realised that it was a... Oh, this is connected to the vagina. This is this is, <laughs> this is like connected to a bad vagina or something. I'm not actually sure what this is connected to. Yeah, neither am I really. Just yeah. that it was, it's a really, really bad word. No, that was a really bad word. My mother actually didn't use bad language at all, which was really actually quite funny. When she got dementia, the language that came out of her was, oh, it was just brilliant. You got to go, it was in there all the time. Yeah. <laughs> One of my daughters, the, the teachers are wondering why she was getting on so well with this particular teacher. All the parents had problems with this teacher. And one of the mums said, look, why does your daughter get on so well? You know, they're, they get on great in the classroom. And I asked her and she said, oh, yeah, whenever that teacher's talking to me, I just in my head, I go, F and 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 she was she was only about eight or something. I was going, okay, that's fine. Just just keep that in your head because that's not going to go away with the principal. Like. <laughs> that was her tool. She just nodded away and smiled going, you're oh. an F and F and F and I think you're an F and, and you can F F. And she just smile away. Yeah. Like imagining the person with a clown nose or no clothes. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I often wonder if it's linked to being an actor, that kind of thing. Someone said that to me once. God, he's, your emotions are very near the surface. And it's funny, I'm putting my hand there, you know, kind of on my chest, just under my voice box now. And our emotions are in our amygdala, you know, in the center part of our brain. It's an unconscious part. But I guess I can access my emotions very easily. I think that helps you if you want to be an actor. But it also means that as a human being, you feel an awful lot of things a lot more than other people feel them. And that isn't always a good thing, yeah. you know, and I would be offended easily. So you, you, that's probably why I avoid confrontation. If your emotions are here, you would get offended. Easily. 
Yeah. I mean, I suppose what my mother would have described me maybe as being highly strong, you know, that kind of way. Like, so I would have in my youth have had a lot of confrontations, a lot of arguments, a lot of rows. I was the youngest of five. We had a very strict family, but I had this humongous sense of justice. Right. No, that is not right. That should not be happening. You should not be doing that. And it didn't matter if I saw a gurrier, we used to call them then, like, you know, um, somebody you shouldn't approach on the street, dropping litter. I would say you to pick that up. Like, really, I had no filters, no bars. And, you know, I have done it. I've done it as an adult. I've done it several times. I've had my husband pull me back and say, you can't do that. And I think as I've got a bit older, I've learned to filter and stop that. But I am sort of fearless when it comes to if I see something wrong happening, I'll say it. I don't know what it is, you know. And I mean, I did have a woman in a fast food store nearly jump over a counter to punch me in the face because I gave out to her for hitting her child. That was one of those where I felt guilt for days afterwards because I felt I had to speak up for the child. She had about four kids. She was only bullying one of them and being horrible. It was horrible to watch. And what was awful was everybody in this fast food place was sitting watching it and saying nothing. And I'm looking at this six year old being hit, being demoralized, being demeaned. And I actually think I said to the kid, your mum can't hit you like that. And I said, don't be doing that. And she says, he's mine. I can fucking do what I like with him. And I said, you cannot. And I said, listen to me, son, your mum should not be doing that to you. You do not deserve to be treated like that. But your one was over. <laughs> Who did I think I was? My husband literally dragged me out. She was going to punch me in the face. Mere play to you, because when you said it first, I mean, I didn't know if it was a tap on the wrist. Oh, no, she was really beating the child up like it was horrible. It was just horrible stuff. And everybody was just ignoring it. And I just said, what is that doing to that child? What age was the child? I'd say about six. Hopefully that child will remember that moment. That was what I consoled myself with, because I also went home thinking, fuck, she's probably going to beat the shit out of the child when she takes him home. There is that side of it as well, but she's doing that anyway. She's doing that anyway. Yeah, Anything you could yeah. do is that click something in that child's brain that went, this isn't okay, actually. Yeah, like you see parents and you lose. And as I said, you know, I've done things to my kids. Now, not anything like that, but you know, that you regret. You've shouted at them or, yeah. or whatever, but like. Listen, I'm not quite, oh my God, I've thrown my kids out of the side. I threw my daughter and her friend out. They were, <laughs> the they were being rude to me. And I thought they'd walk back to the house, which was down the hill. She, the poor girl walked back to her own house miles away. I had to go and find oh, her. no. Yeah, whatever about being like. And then did she own. tell her mother? Her own mother was only delighted I did it. But like, <laughs> There's another mother could take it really badly. Erina. Nobody takes me seriously, I don't think. Where are you from now with your Erina? Erina. I'm from uh, Whitechurch near Blarney in Cork. All right. Okay. So that's now why you're going to set Charlie Valentine in Cork. Yeah, I'm going to get it in Cork. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come here. I was going to do a little test on you um, to see how brainy you are. I know. I'm not very brainy. Yeah, go on. This is a heal your whole test. So (laughs) see how many answers you get right in 30 seconds, right? Oh, Jesus. Now I'm under pressure. Yeah. So now it's a word association one and you have to get the right word that I've thought of as well. So you have to get the same answer I thought of. Okay. Can I not just come up with the first one that Um, I think of? You can. So am I meant to come up with the first thing I think of or what I think you might have come up with? That you think of, but the more they connect with my answers. So you have to also be able to read my mind because you're really waiting. Okay. Yeah, I'll do I'll try doing the mind reading thing. (laughs) On your marks. So I'm going to say word and you have to say word association. Ready, steady, go. Ass. Hole. Pot. 
Hole. Key. Hole. Man. Hole. Low. Hole. Cubby. Hole. High. Hole. Peep. Hole. Hell. Hell hole. Worm. Hole. That's done. Right. 30 seconds done. Oh, that's it. I was waiting for one that didn't have hole where I would just say hole. <laughs> oh, yeah. I presume everyone just says hole, do they? I've never done the test before. Oh, have you not? <laughs> just tried it on you. It's amazing how many words end in hole. Do you know? Yeah. Um, I love that idea of heal your hole. I thought it was so funny at first when I heard it when Emily told me about it. But it's brilliant the way you put that all together, you know, and you can just kind of it's, well, it's, it's going to die a death at some point. So I've, I've, uh, I've on episode 76 at this stage. I, uh, I've done a hundred and something, but I only started the same time as you now. I started on the 9th of March, 2020. Wow. Um, You've done more than one a week then. I've done two a week. Yeah, but I've also taken breaks. I do a season and then take a break, although between kind of season. Yeah, but yours actually have information. I mean, mine, next episode 69 was me talking to people on the street about having 69ers or whether they still. Ah, brilliant. Do you know what? Like Brilliant. Does anyone know that? I remember a joke from that. That's what's come from my mind. What's a 68? Foreplay. I don't know. (laughs) Give me a blowjob and I'll owe you one. (laughs) Oh my God, I need to write that down. I like to finish my podcast with my guests and seeing as we're each other's guests. I like to finish it with your tip for thriving and or surviving in life. Do you have a tip? Yeah. Like my dad would always say, he doesn't say it actually, but oh God, I have a few of them. Can I have two or three? Yeah, give me a few. Oh, that's okay. Give me a few. Right. Okay. Well, I see my dad. Nothing is a problem. So just say yes. It'll be grand and and stop feckin' thinking, start feckin' doing. So if your brain is in bits, just physically do something. He is a very physical man. So I guess they're kind of things. I'm sorry. Another one he said is worrying is like paying interest on a debt you haven't received. Um, oh, brilliant. So I probably just go to him whenever I'm going to worry or whenever I'm getting stuck in my head or nothing is a problem. Because if you think something is a problem today, there's always a bigger one around the corner than somewhere else. <laughs> Or someone else has a worse life than you. It's not really a problem. Yeah, it's just get on with this. What are the two things that are going to get you through the next moment? Do you know what? Just get your keys and get your mobile and your passport and whatever else. Stop worrying about the other 75 things you were meant to bring with you or whatever. I don't know. I've given you too many there, have I? No, you haven't. It's kind of all the one. It's really just do it, isn't it? It's like that Nike's. Get up off your hole and get on. Get up off your hole and get on with it. <laughs> yeah. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Superbrain is a labour of love, born of a desire to empower people to use their brain to thrive in life and attain their true potential. You can now go ad-free on patreon.com forward slash superbrain for the price of a coffee. Please help me reach as many people as possible by sharing this episode. Imagine if we could get to a million downloads by word of mouth alone. I believe it is possible. I believe that great things happen when lots of people do little things. Visit sabinabrennan.ie for the Superbrain blog with full transcripts, links and the like. Follow me on Instagram at Sabina Brennan and on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan. Tune in on Thursday for another booster shot from me and on Monday for another fascinating interview with an inspiring guest. Thank you for listening. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.